Oregon's beer scene is ever evolving. And some things, like world-famous beer festivals, apparently aren't built to last. I'm Andrew Thien. And I'm Elena Neal Sachs. And this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Up next, Andre Menier, the beer and beverage writer and newsletter editor at the Oregonian and Oregon Live, will talk all about the latest news in Oregon's beer world. Andre, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. Good to see you. So, Andre, I'm fairly new to Portland, and I know you've talked to Andrew about how things have been since 2020 when the pandemic started, but can you kind of give us an overview, like, how is the beer industry doing now in Portland and in Oregon overall? Yeah, I mean, it's not a real easy question to answer, to tell you the truth, Um, to put sort of a pin on how it's doing. um, It's kind of a moving target. The pandemic obviously put a hurting on everybody you know, shutting things down, having things go back and forth, having people stay home. And I would say on the whole now, things are getting a little bit better. I think people really started to expect things to improve at the beginning of 22 when we started to get vaccinated and people started going out a little bit more, but it's really been a struggle and inflation hit. And so costs are up. People are coming back, but not to the degree that they were when the pandemic hit. And so sales are rebounding, but we're not quite back to where we were uh, when everything kind of went south. That's, I, I think that's probably generally the, the broadest way I can describe things. So Andre, we are talking on a Thursday and it's a snow day. And this is the second consecutive week that we're talking about, um, I guess, uh, alcohol related <laughs> items with the uh, Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission um, saga, I guess, for lack of a better word. Elena talked to uh, our dear friend, Noel Crombie, last week about that. Um, so it feels a little weird, I guess, to be talking about this, but also fun in the same <laughs> yeah. vein. I guess saga is a word, scandalous, uh, ridiculous. You know, some of the, all of those things apply. But yeah, I look out my window and we've got six inches of snow, so I'm not sure what to do with myself. Well, don't start shoveling just yet, but I guess um, prior to the OLCC piece, felt like the biggest news in the beer world was kind of went out with a whimper, and that's the Waterfront Beer Festival being canceled once again. So paint a picture for us, Andrea. How did this go from a signature event that drew tens of thousands of people, you know, ultimately from around the world to Portland to poof, gone? Well, there's a number of factors. Uh, For starters, big festivals seem to not be the thing anymore. Even before the pandemic, the Oregon Brewers Festival, which is the festival you're referencing that would be held every summer in Waterfront Park in downtown Portland, it had faded from its peak. At one time, I believe it was drawing 70,000 every summer. And three years ago, just before the pandemic hit, it was probably down to 55. So it was big festivals like that are, are a bit on the way. And part of the reason for that is that the growth of craft breweries across the nation has been huge in, in the past decade. You know, there's something like 8,000 craft breweries in the nation now. And so every, not well, not every, I shouldn't use absolutes, but so many cities and so many neighborhoods have their own brew pub that it's not hard to find a craft beer. And most of these brew pubs brew a variety of craft styles. And so you don't really have to go to a festival like you used to, to get your variety, um, to 
get a brown, to get an IPA, to get a lager, to get whatever. You know, it's all kind of available to you. And the the selection at your grocery store is equally impressive, you know. So no matter what your style is, you're going to get it. You're going to get good quality. And I think that's hurt the big festivals. At the same time, some of the smaller festivals are stepping into that void because they're more community focused. They're more uh, interesting. They're less sort of threatening now with the big crowds, uh, the less overwhelming. I just last weekend went to Astoria for Fort George Brewery's Festival of Dark Arts, and it was just fantastic. It's a festival that's focused on uh, Fort George Brewery's Matryoshka Russian Imperial Stout. That's sort of the star of the show there. And a bunch of the variants that they make from that. You know, you get you get beers like Matryoshka with uh, vanilla bean and coconut or, uh, you know, all, different styles like that. And it's a whole stout festival. But they also have uh, sword swallowers. They have uh, great bands. <laughs> they have, um, you know, stilt walkers. They have blacksmiths. So it's this whole sort of community coming together with these eclectic ideas and these, these eclectic attractions. Um, you know, beer, other beer festivals... Uh, there's one this weekend out in Sisters, Oregon, a winter beer festival where they turn a bunch of cabins uh, at Sutter Lodge into little mini brew pubs. And they, they do beer out of there. And you, you, you're at a festival under the pines and the dug furs of the Deschutes National Forest. You know, so these these festivals are really the ones that are catching fire with people and the ones that are that are really interesting now instead of ones where you're going to be amid 80,000 people. Would you say, like, do you think part of the reason for the kind of switch almost from these, you know, huge beer festivals to maybe smaller ones is the abundance of all these craft breweries is kind of making people more, I don't know, focused on like niche areas of the brewing world rather than just like, oh, a beer festival, like overall, they want more like specificity or is that not? really part of it. No, I think that's, I think that's, you got your finger on some of it there, you know, and especially the smaller festivals are, are going to often feature smaller breweries that maybe you never heard of. This weekend um, is the Hillsbrew Festival out in Hillsboro, and they focus on small breweries from throughout Oregon, um, you know, Washington County, Southern Oregon. And so you're going to get a, a bunch of styles and a bunch of breweries that you've probably never heard of. And I think that's really attractive. I went last year and I learned a whole bunch about new breweries and about uh, the way that they were making various styles. And it was pretty crowded and they did really well. Um, and interestingly enough, they're from the same organizers who started the Oregon Brewers Festival. And so hmm. they themselves are kind of recognizing, okay, maybe it's not the way to go to be big. Maybe we should kind of do smaller. And I think they're finding more success with that. Y you know, my last thought is, uh, in terms of the large brew festivals the Ben Brew Fest has been canceled for three years now. Well, it made a little return last year. It was across, it used to be held in the Les Schwab Amphitheater, which is now the Hayden Holmes Amphitheater. And they, it's undergoing some renovations in that amphitheater. And so they moved it across into the old mill district among the shops there. And I thought it was super quaint and fun. It was smaller. I thought it had a better vibe. It's always been a good brew festival. But then they canceled again this year and they didn't do it in the shops and they didn't do it in, in the big amphitheater saying they weren't done with renovations. And so I add these things up and I think, I, I don't know. I just don't have a whole lot of confidence that the big festivals are really committed to making it happen anymore. I'm, I'm not saying they aren't. I'm just saying that um, my spidey sense is flaring. 
So what, if anything, do you think Portland loses by losing something like, like, uh, the Oregon Brewers Festival, um, you know, other than things change and traditions die, but, um, do we lose anything by losing that kind of madhouse when in the dust and the 90 plus degree heat, you know, I'm not actually missing it now that we talk about it, Andre. <laughs> um, you know, I, they, they held it last year. It was smaller. I enjoyed it. It was kind of fun, but yeah, it was hotter than heck. I think what you really lose is sort of being the, a big dog. You know, it was probably, I, I want to say it was the biggest festival west of the Mississippi in the nation. And, but Portland was always Birvana too, right? Like in the 90s and the 2000s, Portland was the, the gold standard in the nation for what a great beer city was. And that festival was part of that aura and part of that mystique. But what's happening now is that every state, there I go using absolutes again, Many states have great breweries. Uh, you know, I'm always arguing with my California buddies whose breweries are better, Oregon's or Californians. And I mean, and clearly it's Oregon. But Oof, that, I don't know. <laughs> uh oh, where are we from, Elena? <laughs> Bay Area. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. Go. It's better here. Um, but the, uh, the the broader point is that every place has great breweries now, right? I go visit my my family in San Diego, and there's great breweries down there. And so I think you just see parody. Yeah, losing that festival is just another, you know, sort of notch away from, you know, Portland being way up in the ether in terms of beer cities comparative to other cities. Kind of on that note, though, like it is still Portland is still like known as a beer city, even as, you know, other parts of the country are expanding their scenes. But with so many different, you know, small breweries all over the city and the state, what are some of the qualities that allow certain breweries to be become like staples and, you know, recognize names while others maybe, you know, come for a couple of years and then ultimately close or move? That's a good question, Elena. And I think it kind of depends on what you want to be. You know, if you're a solid regional brewery with good solid sales and grocery stores, a, a well-established name, um, you know, say a Breakside, you're probably doing okay. You know, packaged beer sales went way up with the pandemic. Um, you know, people know you, they still seek you out. If you're a brewery that made a big investment to grow as the pandemic hit, you may be in trouble or you're closed. You know, there's, there's a few of those stories too. However, the focus for many places right now is the small neighborhood brewery. Keep it small for now. One or two tap rooms, a, a moderate-sized brew house, sell your own beer over your own counter, make good beer, and then keep that, those profit margins high by selling directly as opposed to selling the majority of your beer through distribution, which cuts into margins and makes it harder. Um, you know, and if you can keep your overhead manageable during a time of inflation, um, during a time of cost going up, um, and you can sell more of your beer to your own customers, through your own people in your on your own stools, you're going to do better. Um, you know, the examples of that are, are, you know, there's quite a few of them. Grand Fruit Brewing just opened up in Southeast Portland. They're killing it. They're kind of the buzz brewery of the year right now. Remind us about that, Andre, because like true, you know, people who read your stuff are going to know that. But um, what what is that place? Um, Grand Fur is a brew pub that opened in Southeast Portland in the former home of West Coast Brewing, which is a story on the other side of this coin. Uh, <laughs> yes. 
And um, a, a, a couple opened up Grand Fur, Whitney Burnside, who is a very well-known, um, high, highly respected brewer in Portland. She was the head, she was the brewmaster for Ten Barrel Brewing in Portland. She was the head brewer at Pelican. She's, um, you know, she makes incredible beer. And she and her husband, uh, Doug Adams, who was a celebrity chef, who was a, a finalist on Top Chef, he opened Bullard in, in downtown Portland years ago. Um, so they're very well known. They opened up this place called Grand Fur Brewing. It's on Stark in Southeast Portland. Great beer. They're turning it into like this sort of combo brew pub, um, supper club, just putting out great stuff. They're a success story. Steeplejack Brewing opened up, uh, turned an old church in Northeast Portland into this majestic, beautiful brewery and pub. They have expanded to two more places. They have a plan for a fourth place in Manzanita. They're making great beer. Um, they've got, you know, some dollars that they're putting into things. Um, and so that's really helping them invest for the future. Van Henyon out in Bend, a lager maker. You know, there's there's really good examples of places that are really doing it right. Piggybacking off of Atlanta's question and kind of what you hit on there, Andre, is it still the case that the suburbs are and maybe mid-sized cities like Eugene, Springfield, Medford, Salem are going to be the place where you see a lot of new growth? Um, or are you kind of seeing more investment in the city or both? I think I think the suburbs are where it's at. That's not to say that there's nothing going on in Portland. Um, but I just went to an opening in Estacada where Time Travelers Brewing uh, opened up in the former Fearless Brewing site. Um, and they've got huge support so far from the Estacada community in the outer Clackamas County uh, regions. Um, and as I've reported many times, uh, Washington County, Beaverton, Hillsboro, they're all going gangbusters. Uh, Breakside is finally starting to build their, their place out in downtown uh, historic Beaverton. Loyal Legion Beer Hall opened up their place out there. Uh, Binary Brewing moved their new home there. You know, so it's all kind of going out there. Um, and then in Clark County, I reported that uh, Backwoods Brewing is building a new place in Ridgefield up the I-5 corner in, in, in Clark County. Vice Beer opened up out in East County um, in, I mean, Astoria isn't a suburb, but Obelisk just opened up. And Astoria is also going gangbusters. Um, in Bend, like I said, you've got Van Henyon, you've got Boss Rambler, which opened a couple of years ago. So the, you know, the outside the Portland core is definitely uh, ripe for places to start up and doing well. And we're seeing a lot of that. Um, but in Portland, you're still seeing, you know, some good places opening. Grand Fur Upright is just opening its second uh, tap room. Uh, which, you know, Upright is one of my favorite breweries anywhere in the world. And they opened up out in Northeast Portland in the Cully neighborhood. And then you've got um, Fracture Brewing, uh, which just opened up in Southeast as well. Um, Foreland Beer opened their second place in Southeast. And then, and then one of the biggest stories of last year, of course, was uh, Living House Beer, which opened in the former Modern Times building, which Modern Times is the flip side, flip side of that coin as well. And then Heavy Alice opened out of there as sort of a, a second brand as well. I mean, you know, the list just goes on and on and on. And just kind of scratching the surface here of the ups and the downs on either side of the coin. Yeah, I mean, obviously, as your uh, 
list of all these new breweries shows people still love their beer they love their alcohol uh but at least from what i've been seeing it also seems like there's been a wave of interest in non-alcoholic and low abv beers uh recently i mean oregon breweries like crux and deschutes um have recently experimented with some non-alcoholic options and just overall alcohol consumption seems to be lower among uh, younger generations right now. Do you think this is a trend that's here to stay or are non-alcoholic beers just kind of having a moment right now? Oh, they're absolutely here to stay. And in fact, uh, you know, um, I didn't even ask you to do this, but you're basically promoting an upcoming story that I'm writing right now on non-alcoholic beers. I, literally an hour ago, I just got done doing a second round of taste tests of about 10 non-alcoholic beers that I'm reviewing. Mm and writing up a story. We did a little video of taste testing them last week. Um, and so that'll be coming up. So thanks for the little plug. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, but it's not a trend. And it's something that's more popular in Europe. And I think brewers here are starting to feel pressure to do on a number of fronts. One, people want to be healthier. Dry January, uh, dry October, those are gaining popularity every year. Um, I hear from people who want to know about non-alcoholic beers. I, want, I hear from people who want to do low-alcohol beers. Um, and there's some really good ones out there. You know, I really wasn't expecting to like any of them. And there were five that I would like. My highest rating was, wow, that's non-alcoholic. And I think there were five <laughs> or six where I had the reaction of, wow, that's non-alcoholic. There's a brewery in Olympia called Three Magnets Brewing. And they have a line called Wellbeing. Uh, or they have a beer called Wellbeing IPA. It's part of their self-care non-alcoholic line. It's fantastic. Like it's as good an IPA as you would get at a good pub. Um, there's wow. others out there called Wellbeing, which I can't remember where they're from. They're not from the Northwest. Athletic is the national brand that has gotten a lot of buzz and it's, they're good. They're not as good as these, some of these locals I had, but they're very solid, but you're definitely going to see that. Um, Deschutes makes a non-alcoholic black beet porter that tastes almost like the original. It's a really, really good beer, whether it's got alcohol or not. Um, as you mentioned, Crux has its Nomo line. Um, Ten Barrel has its NA line. So, yeah, I, I do not think it's a, it's a fad. I think it's going to keep growing. And I think breweries are going to be under pressure to do it more. Additionally, there's pressure under breweries to appeal to more than just bros, right? Like in general, breweries have found that women don't want a big, heavy IPA or high ABV. They prefer lower ABV beers, whether it's lagers or whatever. And so breweries want to appeal to new demographics. Women, as far as research goes, don't drink as much beer. And so that's a market that they can tap, but they need to give people what they want. And so breweries will be under pressure to create lower ABV beers, uh, not only uh, for people who want to be healthier, but to tap those new markets. Speaking of trends like the low ABV, uh, you know, obviously in recent years, the IPA heavy moniker, I guess, is kind of the pendulum has swayed back and forth. And it seems like there's new trends that people are trying. I mean, what's the next big thing? I know we've talked about milkshake beers at some point and smoothie beers and all that stuff for lack of a better descriptor what else is the new trend andre i mean like thick beers like smoothie sours cold ipas you know all that yeah um cold ipas are doing pretty well you know they're 
essentially IPAs that are they're that are made like lagers and so they don't have quite the heft to them and the those sort of smoothie fruity sours have had their had their moment and I think they'll probably fade a little bit but what I think is catching on more and more are kind of what we're talking about are low ABV sort of mild ales um, you see places like upright who are making a lot of more traditional English styles and away days brewing in Southeast Portland, making more traditional British styles. And those can be lower ABV. Steeplejack, who I mentioned before, is focused on making lower ABV. And so I think these styles, mild ales, brown ales, you don't see a whole lot of browns anymore. But, um, you know, these sort of lower ABV traditional styles, I kind of think are where it's at. And you're seeing more and more people start to make them. I don't miss the brown ales, I have to say. A good brown ale is a beautiful thing, Andrew. (laughs) You find find beauty anywhere, Andre. That's part of what I love about you. Um, What else, uh, before we let you go, anything else we should have asked you? Like what other, like it's a snowy day here in the metro area. What's, uh, What's in the fridge? What do you have on deck? What's in the fridge? Well, I at the festival this weekend, I bought uh, a few bottles of the uh, Matryoshka, the Fort George Imp- Russian Imperial Stout. Um, so I've been enjoying those lately. Um, I wrote, I mentioned earlier, a brewery called Hetty Alice Brewing um, that's operating out of the Living House facility, and I'm really loving their beers, their I, their IPA, their Pilsner. Um, speaking of Pilsner, I always have a stock of Chuckanut Pilsner in my fridge. Chuckanut, which is made up in Washington, but has their peanut beer hall here in Southeast Portland. And I always make sure to hit there because I think their Pilsner is the gold standard. Uh, those are the ones off the top of my head. Do you have any advice for Elena? She's <laughs> navigating this sat- saturated scene. Elena, you have any questions for Andre? What kind of styles do you like, Elena? Uh, I mean... Typically, I am more into kind of IPA, pale ale, um, hoppy beers, but I am also interested in trying new things. Um, so really anything. I'm not, I don't typically love darker beers, but again, I could be swayed. <laughs> um, well, what neighborhood? Uh, Foster Powell. Foster Powell. Well, Assembly Brewing. Have you been to mm-hmm. Assembly Brewing on Foster? Once. Yes. Their Detroit style pizza is ridiculously good. Also, so assembly is part of Black Restaurant Week. Um, Their Detroit pizza is ridiculously good. Their founder, George Johnson, is a great guy and he makes good beers. I love his beers. He's made an awesome new IPA a couple months ago that I can't remember the name of. Um, (laughs) But hit up assembly. Uh, I'm going to be there Saturday afternoon, as a matter of fact. Um, in that same area is Montevilla Brewworks, which was in my top 10, I believe, last time I did a Portland rankings. Montevilla is a fantastic brewery uh, by founder Michael Cora, who really knows how to make great beer. And then around the corner from there is Threshold Brewing, run by the wife and husband team of Sarah and Yark Shemainsky. Um, and they, are, they like to find what a neighborhood uh, brew pub is. You know, well, they're not a pub. Brew pub, I think of has food and they don't have food. They have food trucks, but, and there's lots of options around there, but they, um, they, they have makers craft markets. Uh, they have neighborhood events in there. They have yoga, they have trivia night, like they do everything. And that's kind of one of the trends in craft beer these days. Um, it's just kind of doing as much as you can, you know, doing what you can to get people into your, into your place and, 
and keep them there and serve them good beer, good beer and let them have a good time. And those are three places right around you that are doing that. Awesome. Thank you for the recs. Yeah. Well, Andre, thank you for all you do and for doing all you can on this podcast today. I'm always here for you, Andrew. I'm here to bail you out when you have nobody else interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. You can find links to Andre's recent stories in the episode notes. And the best way to keep up with all things beer is to subscribe to Andre's newsletter, Oregon Brews and News. It's free and you can find it at OregonLive.com slash newsletters. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram where I'm Oregonian Beer Guy. Uh, gotta, you got to uh, promote, promote Andre <laughs> on all mediums. And the best way to support our journalism is with a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Hey, I'm old. I got to keep my job however I can. Man, I gotta, I gotta keep grinding. Until next time, everyone.